Shall we bow our heads in prayer? O Lord, in your mercy and your grace, we commend this time unto your hands, asking, Lord, that you use these words, Lord, to teach us your way. And so may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This coming uh, three Sundays, uh, this Sunday, next, and uh, the one after, I will be preaching on the theme of the kingdom of God or the stories of the kingdom. And it's quite appropriate for today. Uh, I actually came this morning dressed in green. Uh, I'm not sure whether some of you noticed, and uh, halfway through I had to do a costume change. So pastors also do wayang for people. Um, Many don't realize this, and maybe especially in our younger generations, our church has liturgical or uh, lectionary colors. And uh, this color in front here uh, often denotes the season that we're in. And the last season that we have just been going through, and this is, uh, this is where I attest to see whether you notice what's going on in our church. Do you know what color was here before? Some of us are, you know, we know the lectionaries of which I, but if you, if you didn't notice, it was green. <laughs> green is the color of the, uh, the season after Pentecost, and uh, it is one of the longer seasons. It was green for a pretty long time, uh, indicating life in the fullness after Pentecost. Today is white uh, because it is Christ the King Sunday. Uh, the next color that comes after this, uh, particularly on the first Sunday of Christmas, but normally four Sundays before uh, Christmas, will turn the color to blue. Uh, that's the coming of Advent. So today, we remember Christ the King Sunday. Uh, but when Christ is the King, we also talk about kingdom and the kingdom of God. And if you were to actually try and explain the Bible to a group of people who have never heard about the Bible or even an alien, one of the pictures or one of the symbols that is given to us is kingship, that God is king. And if we go back even to Genesis chapter 1, we have God the king, the creator of the entire cosmos, the entire universe, but within that kingdom comes a fracture. Uh, uh, a mutiny, if you would call it that, where the subjects have actually uh, disobeyed and left. I had an interesting conversation with my son recently about the Sejarah paper, history. And one of the things that they learn in history nowadays is uh, the definition of a kingdom. Uh, some of our Form 5 students are cringing. <laughs> it's like, oh no, I've got to remember Sejarah now. What defines a kingdom? What defines a kingdom? Well, in order to have a kingdom, you need to have a king, you need to have a territory, and you need to have subjects. And so within these things, it's important to keep this in your mind as we go through the gospel of Matthew, because Matthew is talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Almost 70 to 80% of Jesus' teachings comes through parables 
And the predominant theme about the parables is the kingdom of God. He would normally begin his parable by saying, the kingdom of God is like this. And so until we understand what Jesus is speaking about, the good news about the kingdom of God, we kind of like miss that, misunderstand what he is trying to say. So this particular Sunday, I'm talking about God's kingdom at hand. And if you really want to go a little bit closer to what the theme is, uh, we're beginning in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, it begins with the genealogy. And the genealogy has uh, 14 generations uh, times 3 until it arrives to Jesus, denoting that this line of Jesus is human. It has a human origin that begins in it. But within this particular story now comes God, Emmanuel, with us in the messy part of life. Uh, this year, uh, our Christmas theme is Emmanuel. And so our Sunday school and our youth and some of our adults are busy crafting uh, a story within it. And within that story, I've asked them to look at the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew doesn't paint very pretty pictures of Christmas. Uh, his Christmas is quite stark. And so we go uh, into a little bit of this. Now, before I, I go into this, I want to ask you this question, which you, you have in your outline there. Uh, it begins with this illustration about the power of the sun in an atom. The power of the sun in an atom. Now, when people talk about the power of the sun in an atom, they often think about uh, atomic bombs. And if you've been reading history, uh, maybe you're more familiar with uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, where close to 90,000 and 60,000 people were pretty much obliterated uh, at that one instant in that war. But the fallout, the nuclear fallout after that war also killed as many, if not more. And the effects of that are continuing on. Now, all I knew about atomic bombs, uh, I'm not a nuclear physicist, neither am I a crazy mad scientist trying to blow up Malaysia. Uh, but I didn't know this, but there are even bigger atomic bombs than Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the, the, the recent one, the biggest bomb that was ever exploded was the Tsar bomb. During the height of the Russian Cold War, uh, US, and, uh, US and Russia were battling to see who had the bigger bomb. That psychological warfare was going on to say, I am more powerful than you. Beware of me before you even decide to press the button that I have an even bigger bomb. And so the Tsar bomb in 1961 was exploded in the, in the atmosphere uh, and gave a yield of 50 megatons. 50 megatons of TNT is the equivalent explosive power. That was 3,333 times more explosive than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. So if anything, we've proven to all mankind that we have a greater capacity and ability to blow ourselves up. But what really blows me away 
is that the power of the sun is contained in ordinary atoms. The very same atoms that are flying in the air right now, uh, the hydrogen uh, bomb, a thermonuclear bomb, is exploded by breaking up the nucleon or the neutron of an atom of hydrogen, forcing it to combine into helium and then causing a chain reaction throughout, the, throughout that whole place until enough heat is generated to blast everything out of that's visible. Now here's the thing. If in a particle of air, it has enough power to generate the, the heat of a sun, there is much mystery in how God creates the world that that which has such immense, tremendous power is contained in very normal, ordinary vessels. I gave this image of the atomic bomb, or rather the power of the sun in an atom, because the power of the creator of the entire universe is now contained, was, or was contained, in a normal, ordinary human being. It staggers the mind to think, how does God run and order this world as opposed to how man decides to run this? When man wants to have power, they blow things up. But then when we look at the way God does things, he puts his immense power into a very self-controlled, holy and righteous person who doesn't use his power to blow people up, but instead takes their abuse and lives with them. And so I want to present this paradox of the kingdom. The paradox of the kingdom of God, which is so totally unlike the powers of this world and the kingdoms of this world. And I invite you in the next three Sundays, as we look at this whole idea of what a kingdom mindset would be, that you put aside the human kingdoms and the human worldviews. And you begin to try and rethink this paradox of how God's kingdom operates. Because you must understand that the gospel began with both John the Baptist and Jesus saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The good news is that this kingdom of God is available and we are entering into it. The very words that the angel speaks to Joseph, that is a prophecy from Isaiah being cast into the future, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, a young maiden, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, or is translated, God with us. God with us. And so our understanding of what it means to have God with us needs to be interpreted through Scripture. Because many times when we sing our songs or praise, when we make our declarations, we say God with us, we are often thinking God's going to blow you up. He's going to destroy you. He's going to overwhelm you and we will be utterly victorious. Well, no, we have to look at how Scripture looks at this. In the same way, that he is, that Joseph and Mary are being told that Jesus is this son that is going to come to them through the agency of the Holy Spirit 
and that he would be called Emmanuel, their conditions were totally contradictory to the expectations of that time and even now. Let's look at the text. It begins very simply. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, or Jesus Christ, uh, came about. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his surname. Christ is his title, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Promised One. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now that's the first alarm bell that goes off. In Malaysia, we understand this uh, in the majority uh, race that we have, right? You have the bernikah. Uh, okay, that's the engagement. I don't know how many people still do this, but I find in East Malaysia, uh, the engagement is a big deal. People fly over, people come, and one year before their actual wedding itself, they have an engagement ceremony. Now, within that engagement ceremony, I need you to understand that the Jewish people, when they're engaged, they're effectively husband and wife, but they have not yet come together. So that's what it means when they say, before they came together. In other words, before they've had marital relations with each other, they were already seen as husband and wife. Okay, so his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, if a person is uh, in a way caught and, and uh, is pregnant before they come together, several issues come about. One, it is uh, disgraced, it's shameful, it is basically uh, not to be done. And worse still, for the couple, particularly since they have not come together, Joseph will have this issue. Whose child is this? Because I have not been with her. And so I remind you again this rejoinder. Emmanuel, God with us, but within this messy situation. Why didn't God do something that is more acceptable in culture? And why this particularly poor couple? Why not in Herod's uh, family? Why not in another more righteous and holy families? Surely uh, there were some who were in a better income stage. Why the disgrace? Why the shame? Verse 19 continues, Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. So Joseph was a very, uh, you might call it a devout and one who observed the law. Okay. It was uh, his ritual and his pattern to do this. And yet, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, this is uh, Matthew's way of portraying the conflict that is happening between his mind and his heart. He is faithful to the law. The law requires that he do this and he wants to be faithful to the law. But there's a part of him, he also says, I, I, I don't want to disgrace her publicly. So it may likely well be that although they were engaged, it was not yet fully disclosed to everyone what had happened. And so the only group of people who might know would be the immediate family members. So he determines in his mind 
to divorce her quietly so that she would not have to go through public disgrace. So I put to you this first point, that the king comes in the midst of shame, disgrace, and suffering. Yet contrary to our ideas about the presence of God and that God will fix all our problems, sometimes you might find that God is the one who brings us into this problem. And we have to work in it to be faithful. Joseph didn't ask for it to say, give me a, a, give me a, 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 a wife that I might have this problem. I don't think he asked for it. So we need to recognize that the kingdom operates in very messy situations. Now, might I go a little bit further? Because in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see the crisis of God in the midst of our messy world. He comes into a family and they have to suffer the disgrace of many whispers of, hey, uh, if we count the number of months when she delivered, uh, it was rather early, right? <laughs> and it happens these days too. I have friends who come and, you know, they get married and suddenly a baby pops out and everybody starts talking and saying, eh, that was uh, quite fast. <laughs> it's that kind of chatter. It's that kind of shame. And you would think that in your mind, why does God do this? He could do it so many other different ways, but why this way? And it's messy. But if you think that's messy as it is, the shame and the disgrace that when he arrives, Herod, the king. Now, I need to mention this a little bit because although he's called King Herod, he's not a king. He is what we call a prelate. He is assigned uh, the governorship, very much like Pilate, who is the Gentile Roman uh, governor. Uh, Herod is the prelate that is given authority by Caesar, the Roman Empire, to these people. And Herod isn't exactly the proper one in the line who's supposed to be the king. He's put in there because of his political connection and he's distantly related. In fact, he's not even fully Jewish. So Herod is in there, and this is the reason why when the Magi come to Herod and say, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? Now, in any other country, if you go to the current king and you say to that king, where is the king <laughs> of this nation? you're asking to be thrown into jail. But Herod doesn't because he knows he's not the real king. He's just a puppet who's been put in there because the Roman Empire chose him to represent them. And so Herod panics. You mean there's a prophecy that prophesies about this king that's about to come and he has appeared? And so his question Tell me, where is this king so that I too may go and worship him? Matthew is uh, quite understated in his sarcasm there. He wants to find out where this person is. So in the midst of this very messy kingdom, 
the Roman Empire who has occupied them, a puppet prelate who is given authority, who is exacting taxes out of him and who is oppressing every single act of uh, religion. In the midst of, Rome, uh, of uh, temple officials who were corrupt and who had very false piety, the kingdom of God is established. And within this kingdom of God, when Herod finds out that he has been tricked by the Magi, he sends his soldiers and he decimates and kills all the children two years and below, indicating that it is a period of time that has elapsed. In the midst of this messy kingdom, God has arrived in a human child. In the midst of this kingdom of suffering and oppression and violence and genocide, if you want to call it that, this God is present. In the midst of this migrant from Bethlehem who now has to run to Egypt in order to be saved, God is present with them. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to look at this very carefully that the kingdom of God, King, uh, the God himself in the human frail child is present and does nothing yet to change the messy circumstances. He doesn't deal with the slaughter. He doesn't deal with the immigration and migrant uh, issue or the fact that these people are oppressed. He is there with them. And so we need to handle this in our own lives, in our Malaysian situation, in the Hong Kong situation, in the China situation, in all these places of oppression, that God is nonetheless still there in very normal human vessels. And that the kingdom of God is not seen in the ability to destroy and overcome and overwhelm with extreme prejudice and power but it is in the gentleness of God's presence there. Verse 20. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord, so this is Joseph thinking, okay, um, I don't want to disgrace Mary, maybe I'll quietly uh, set it aside so that only the family members are aware and the public doesn't know. Uh, in a dream, uh, uh, the angel of the Lord a particular title is given to this, an emissary from God, possibly Gabriel, because he's often seen as the messenger of God. Joseph, son of David, a reminder of his lineage. Now you have to remember that just before this, the verses 1 to 14, uh, that's the lineage of David. Joseph, son of David. Jesus, son of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus, the name uh, Jesus is the uh, English uh, alliteration of the Greek and also the Jewish name. In, in the Jewish uh, form, it would be uh, Yeshua. In Greek, it would be Jesus. Jesus. But all of them mean God saves. 
God saves, God will save, God is saving. In all its tenses, God saves. Jesus. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said. Through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. And so within this very short, compact segment comes this great mystery that the king comes and he is divine. He is from the Holy Spirit. He's given the name God with us and his very name means God will save. That is his divine uh, identity, if you want to call it that. But within that, Matthew also points out that he is from a lineage of David, from human origin. He has a human name, Jesus. He is born of a human mother, Mary. Fully man, but fully God. But not only that, God with us. The power of the sun in an atom, the power and fullness of God in a normal human vessel. Not just normal, one of the least of the human vessels. What does it mean for a person who is stuck in all these different kinds of situations? It is a message of hope that not as this world counts you as worthy, God counts every human vessel as worthy to be his inhabitation. For that's what it means to have God with us. That's what it means to have the king with us. So here's the thing. I mentioned that the kingdom must have a king. And this king comes in the form of Jesus. I mentioned that the king needs to have a domain or a territory. And that domain is you. You are that vessel. You compose that thing. And God, unlike our kingdoms, is not interested in the physical boundaries or the geopolitical formats. He is most interested in you. He establishes his kingdom from the lowest building block. The individual, the family, the community, the church or temple, and then expands it out. Our world governments work the other way. We conquer the territory, then dominate their politics, and then change their minds. In fact, forcibly change it. But here we have a king who doesn't overwhelm us with power. He instead invites us to be his subject. You must have a king, you have a dominion, and you have subjects. A king is not a king unless the subjects acknowledge him as king. And that acknowledgement can occur one of two ways. It can occur through oppression. I am king. You don't bow to me. I throw you into the lockup and hang you. Or a loyal subject who willingly lays his life down and says, I will do this because I willingly acknowledge you as king. What is our response? 
This Jesus also has an objective. His name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The greatest enemy in this entire world is not our financial well-being, is not our oppression from others and all these things. The greatest enemy, as far as this kingdom is concerned, is the sin that lies within us. Until that mind shift occurs, right, we're still citizens of this world. That our enemies are not flesh and blood on the other side, but our enemies are spiritual. And our enemy is this sin that so easily wants to take over. And so this king wants to help us to deal with the real enemy, the sin that lies within us rather than what we tend to distract ourselves and say, no, it's outside, it's other people. They're the ones. What is the response to this king? Now, this you find in, uh, in the Matthew chapter 2. The three magi come and they say, we have seen the stars and we know that this king is coming. Where is this king that is born to be king of the Jews? They come to worship and later on they present their offerings to him. So here's the thing. If the kingdom of God has arrived and it has come through Christ and Christ is the kingdom himself and we are invited to be subjects into it, what is our response? Matthew depicts two types of responses. One, Magi who comes seeking. And I want to emphasize this word seeking. Nowadays, many of the challenges I find with our young friends uh, and even our old friends, right, uh, is this issue of where is God? How come I don't feel Him? How come I don't see Him? How come, how come? It's a feeling, thinking entirety. But my question, which you need to see from what Matthew is saying, is are you seeking Him? <laughs> There's this uh, favorite tagline that has been going through our world in this past few years. Magi sought out the king. Wise men still seek him. And the scriptures tell, tell us throughout all our scriptures is if you seek him with all your heart and all your strength and all your mind, you will find him. So I tell all those who are still trying to find the answer of the kingdom, keep looking you will find him. That's the promise that's given. Three Magi worship, but a false king instead fears. He's afraid. He offers up false worship and in return, persecution when he doesn't get his way. It's a common pattern when we find people where we abuse religion or we manipulate religion in order to get what we want out of fear. I think we just need to look locally in our own context. Many of us, okay, and I begin with us, let's not even start talking about others. We use religion, we use the name of God in order to get what we want. Our identity, our self-worth, our exploitation of others. We use these fears because we're afraid to be broken and humble before God. 
we offer a form of false worship. And Jesus, throughout all his kingdom talks in the gospel, talks about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, all these false whitewashed tombs. Again, I would ask you to focus on yourself and your family. Try not to distract yourself and say, ah, yeah, that group, that group. No, no, no. The scripture is for those who would be wise about this and apply it to themselves. And worse still, the worst response that, that Jesus encounters in this is persecution, the use of violence and force when we do not get what we want. And to this, I have to ask us to look at the current situation. Whenever a body of people decide to use force in order to gain their way, you have to contrast it with how Jesus did his kingdom work. And ask yourself, is that consistent? Whenever you use force, violence, and you persecute others in order that your way would trump up another way, then you have to ask yourself, is that God's way? We ask this question for ourselves in Malaysia. Many people are asking this question about Hong Kong, China, North Korea, places where Christianity is not the major religion. I assure you that when you look at the scriptures, particularly in Jesus, his type of kingdom is very different from the political kingdom. And we must wrestle. And I'm not saying that that's the answer. You wrestle with that. Because there are times, for example, in apartheid, South Africa, uh, in, uh, in the US during the, the wars between the civil wars, there are times when people fight to defend what is right and true. But the way of Jesus is a kingdom of the heart, mind, strength and soul, not the political kingdom. Let me bring to you some thoughts for us to wrestle with. How do we apply this? If Christ is king and the kingdom of God is at hand and it is contained in ordinary human vessels like us, the angel presented the news to Mary. God is coming and doing this. And the first reaction is, how can this be? <laughs> how will this be? Not how can, not how, but how will this be? Because I am still a virgin. And at the end of it, the answer is very simply, I submit. She received it. She received it in the midst of the mess that it would create for her. Do we receive it in the mess that we are in or will create for us. Of late, recently, when I was thinking about Malaysia, I realized that Malaysia is in a very similar situation as the Bible in the New Testament. Why? Because uh, Christians were not the majority. <laughs> they were the minority. In fact, our situation is much better. At that time, if you were a Christian and you acknowledge yourself as Christian, they'll haul you up and they will basically throw you into prison and they will kill you. 
So if I might put it a bit more carefully, if you became a believer within the majority religion, that is exactly what the New Testament gospel is describing. The persecution they face when someone within their own order decides to go a different path. But here's the thing, do you receive the king in the present masses? Or are you kind of like, uh, no, I expect the king to be present in a different type of situation. So we kind of like ignore the very fact that he is in our midst. Do you know one of the things I had to change in my prayers? Uh, oh Lord, come and be here with us. I, I find that audacious, <laughs> presumptuous. Uh, and, and I cringe at times when I hear some of our traditional language, let's invoke God. The issue is God is ever-present. We say it in our theology, He is ever-present. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, omni-everything. So He's ever-present. The one that is not present is us. <laughs> we are not open to the fact that He is operating. And so in all our messes, right, we ask, God, come la, sort out our mess. Maybe we need to rethink that. He's already there. Maybe he's the one who brought us into this mess. And our task is to submit to what God wants to do in this mess. Rather than to be like this uh, situation where we want to tear up everything and destroy everything. The atomic bomb. I am in power and I will destroy you. I call upon the power of God to destroy you. You must wrestle with what Jesus says about the kingdom. The kingdom of God exists where wheat and weeds are together. That is the kingdom of God. It is not a kingdom where it is empty of weeds. For the current time, until Christ comes, we exist together. The king is present in our message. Do you receive him? The king is present in this kingdom, right here, right now, not when you are six feet under or when you are dust. He exists right now in this present kingdom. Will you yield your kingdom? Every one of us is a king or queen of our domain. Some of my grand, <laughs> grand uncles, grand auntie, you cannot enter into the kitchen. <laughs> scream at you, get out of my, this is my domain, you don't come here. Do we yield our kingdom or do we separate it? Or oh, church is where I'm in the kingdom of God. Outside in the office and all that is different matter. I treat my staff one way, I treat myself in the church a different way. Don't dichotomize that. Will you yield your kingdom? That means on a daily basis, always asking, Lord, what would you want me to do in your upside-down view? Actually, we say it's an upside-down view. Uh, the reality is our view is the upside-down view. Dallas Willard had this to say in this divine conspiracy. It's almost as if you're a pilot in an aeroplane that's doing all this aerobatic gymnastics until we can't even figure out which way is up and down. And then suddenly we think that we're going to go up 
and we go up and instead we come crashing to the ground. If Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and his reality is the real reality, we better align our compasses to that reality. Because any other reality is going to come crashing to the earth. And we think that we're going up. Will you yield your kingdom? Thirdly, the king is present and coming again. Are you getting ready to follow and resist evil? I put myself in the shoes of Mary and Joseph. They get all this divine presence. They get the shepherds coming. They get eventually the Magi, you know, coming and all that stuff. And then they're told, run! <laughs> because this maniac of a king is going to try and kill you. Emmanuel, God is with us and we're running? Because that's what God tells them to do. Go. Fulfill this prophecy. Come back. And even when he comes back, Achilles is still there. So that's why they don't go back to Bethlehem. They go to Nazareth and that's why he's known as a Nazarene. What this presents to us living in Malaysia in this current period, living in this global world in this current period, is that the king is present but he's also coming again. We are called to follow him. And in the midst of following him, resist all that is of this world. Are you ready? Do you pursue that? Are you seeking him? And will you follow? Let us pray. I'm just going to pray the prayer that's in the sermon outline at the bottom. And if you want to, when you go home, you can have a look at it and you can pray that more earnestly in your own heart. The prayer goes, Lord Almighty, as you sent Jesus to save us, we receive him into our lives and submit to his kingship. Help us to enter into the kingdom of God in worship and trust. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.